Would you pray with me? Lord, you are the God who hears our cries. We thank you that we know that no matter how our heart feels towards you in the moment, you listen to our desperate pleas of sadness, of despair, of doubt, of pain, and of joy and praise all the same. You are the God who hears, and not only that, you are the God who answers. You don't always answer quite in the way we expect, but you answer nevertheless. And God, not only that, but you are a God who speaks to us, your people. Though we are small, though we are unimportant in the eyes of the world and in the scope of history, God, you remember us. You knit us in our mother's womb. You have a name that is written for each of us on a white stone that is just between you and us. So God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning in the story of Hannah and her prayer. Pray in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one true King. Amen. Last week we began our story of kings with the solitary cry of a barren woman, Hannah. Hannah, a woman who was provoked by her husband's other wife and pitied by her husband, but ultimately remained faithful to the Lord in her suffering and instead of choosing bitterness, though she had every right, she chose to pray again that God would give her a son, and she chose to trust again that God would answer her prayer. Now, we don't know how many times she chose to pray. The text doesn't tell us. But we can trust that if Penina, her rival wife, who as Pastor Jeff told us most likely was Elkanah's second wife, we can know that if, if Penina has multiple children by this time, likely Hannah has prayed this prayer many times before. And she hadn't received an answer. But in her pain, Hannah remained persistent in her prayer. So finally, this week we see the Lord remembers Hannah. Now the Lord remembers all of us. We'll get to that later in the sermon. The Lord remembers all of us. But why do we remember Hannah? Hannah is an unimportant woman. Her husband Elkanah was maybe a highly regarded member of his tribe, but he lived 2,900 years ago in a place that none of us can pronounce. The tribes of Israel weren't an empire. They weren't even really a local empire or a local power at the time, and they didn't even have a king. Remember the end of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Hannah is a small person in a big world with a long history like most of us here. I may even venture to say, like all of us here. 
Yet we remember Hannah. Because God in his mysterious providence chose Hannah to be the small woman whose son would anoint the king, whose great, 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 and so on grandson would be the savior and eternal king of the world. And to be fair to her, she prayed some really great prayers. But Hannah's a nobody. She knows that. Listen to the words that she uses to describe herself in her prayer. She's feeble, hungry, barren, poor, needy. But the last word she uses for herself is the most important. Faithful. For Samuel 2.9. He will guard the feet of his faithful one. Feeble, hungry, barren, poor, needy, faithful. The Lord works his big promises through small acts of faithfulness by small people. So turn with me to 1 Samuel 119. 1 Samuel 119. We'll be reading through 210. And again, as we heard from Lindsay, Hannah has just prayed to the Lord that he would give her a son. And we pick up the story there, 1 Samuel 1, 19. <clears throat> they, that is Hannah and her family, rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. 
The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on him he has set the world. And would you stand with me for these last two verses? Hear these words, friends. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. And so we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. What we see in Hannah's story is that the Lord works his big promises through small acts of faithfulness by small people. And we see him work in three ways in this passage. First, the Lord works his big initiative through our small initiative. The Lord works his big initiative through our small initiative. Second, the Lord works his big victories through our small victories. The Lord works his big victories through our small victories. Third, the Lord works his big story through our small stories. The Lord works his big story through our small stories. And because he works in these ways, we small people, can be strong and secure in our big God. We small people can be small or strong. We're already small. We can be strong and secure in our big God. First then, the Lord works his big initiative through our small initiative. Now, some of you may be wondering, I thought Presbyterians believed that God is sovereign, that God initiates everything, that God is the first cause of everything that happens. And you would be right. But we also believe in something called the doctrine of compatibilism, which means that human free will and divine sovereignty are non-competitive. God's will and our will are on different playing fields. And so God brings about his will without intruding on our free will. Let me give you two examples. First, in our understanding of scripture, most Christian theologians do not believe that God dictated the words of scripture to the human authors of scripture. In other words, that he whispered the words and the humans just wrote them down like a robot. Obviously, there are some parts of the Bible like that, like the Ten Commandments that Moses received on Sinai and some of the oracles of the prophets. But most of the Bible came about through normal human processes of writing and editing and gathering sources and using normal human creativity and resourcefulness that God 
that used to put together his divinely inspired, perfect, and infallible, and infallible word. Most of the authors of scripture probably did not know at that moment that they were writing scripture. Yet God's will was that their words would be his word. To the point that Paul can say in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's the non-competitive nature of God's will and human free will. The second example is from our passage. Look at me at the end of verse 19, uh, 119. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. So who takes the initiative here? If you just read the story with no preconceived ideas about how God works, it seems like Hannah is the one driving the action. She's the one who has the idea to pray for a son. She acts and the Lord responds, right? She asks and God answers. And here the child is conceived in the normal human way. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, knew being, of course, the common Hebrew euphemism for sexual intimacy. It's interesting that this story is very clear about that, unlike, I might add, another story that we get much later in Scripture about another young woman who gets pregnant. No virgin births today. God works through normal human processes. Elkanah knows Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Again, who takes the initiative? Listen, all of us who are believers, especially if you've struggled with infertility or you know someone who has struggled with infertility, we know that every human child is a gift from God. And we praise God for that child, but we also know that every single human child except for one was conceived in the same very human way. That's the non-competitive nature of God's will and human free will. And because we believe that, we thank God for the gift of that child. We don't thank ourselves because we know that God caused it even though we know that we caused it. We're operating on a different playing field than God. And he uses our small initiative to bring about his big initiative. Let's continue. Verse 19 again. <clears throat> uh, end of verse 19. Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, 
Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Notice again that Hannah is taking initiative in the weaning of her child. Now we have this slightly humorous moment that shows a bit of male ignorance. As we saw last week, Elkanah, you know, nice guy, but his emotional IQ isn't very high. Here again it says that Elkanah went up to offer his sacrifice and to pay his vow. Now, it never says that Elkanah made a vow. But as a good husband to Hannah, he takes on her vow. And so he too has promised to God that this newborn child will be dedicated to the Lord as a Nazarite. And he is ready to jump the gun and give Samuel over to the priest right now. And Hannah's like, honey, he's a baby. Eli wouldn't know what to do with him. Eli's not changing Samuel's dirty diapers. So Hannah nurses him until he's a healthy little boy. She raises him up in the ways of the Lord, and then she brings him up to Eli when he's ready. We actually don't know how old Samuel is here. He could be as young as three, which is when a woman's uh, mother's nursing officially ended in Israel's culture. But I expect he's older than that. End of verse 24. And verse 24 says, and the child was young. In Hebrew it says, and the na'ar was a na'ar. And na'ar is often translated young man. It's the same word used in the next chapter of Eli's wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are clearly not three years old. I think the main reason this word is used is to set up a comparison between Samuel and Eli's wicked sons. Because look what Samuel does with his mother. Verse 25. Then they slaughtered the bull. Um, and note that Elkanah has not actually been mentioned as going up with Hannah here. His presence is implied, but I think the word they tells us that Samuel was an active participant in the sacrifice. They slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child, the word here again for child is not our, again, to Eli. Then the end of verse 28 says, and he worshipped the Lord there. You may notice it doesn't say who he is. This verse is one of the great mysteries of Scripture. Because the question is, who is he who is worshiping the Lord here? It could be Elkanah, but he hasn't been mentioned. It could be Eli, but everything we've learned about Eli up to this point makes him seem unlikely. He's not exactly an attentive priest. But if we just read verse 28 naturally, listen to what Hannah says. She says, therefore I have lent him, Samuel, to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. If you read it naturally, it seems like Samuel 
is the one worshiping God. The only thing that prevents most interpreters from assuming that Samuel is worshiping God is the preconceived notion that he's only three, which not only may be a misinterpretation of scripture, but also a misinterpretation of children. Because we know at this church that three-year-olds can worship the Lord. Amen? That was a bit of a tangent. But the main takeaway, and the reason I wanted to go through that, is that Hannah has taken the initiative not only to raise up Samuel physically, but also spiritually to help make him ready to be the young person who is devoted to the Lord. Verse 28 again. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Hannah does not know God's plans for Samuel. Though her prayer indicates that she may be a bit of a prophet herself, her small initiative to pour into the spiritual life of her son prepares Samuel for the big initiative that God will take in his life. Samuel is the kingmaker. He will also be the first prophet that Israel has seen in many years and the last judge to rule over Israel. God uses our small initiative to bring about his big initiative. But before we get there next week, the text interrupts us with one last gift from Hannah. And it should be no surprise to us that she's praying a prayer that sets the course of Israel's history. In fact, Jews read this prayer every year on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which suggests that Jews understand Hannah's prayer to be indicative of who God is and who they are meant to be as a people. And a young Jewish woman named Mary thought the same thing when she based her prayer on Hannah's prayer as we see in Luke 1. So what do we learn from Hannah's prayer that helps set the trajectory for who we are called to be as God's people? First, we see that God works his big victories through our small victories. Verse 3. Don't worry, we'll come back to verses 1 and 2. Verse 3. <clears throat> 2, 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are, ways, are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. One thing that we can't see in English is that this phrase, so very proudly, is the feminine singular in Hebrew. It repeats one word, givoha. Givoha, which means that Hannah is specifically talking about Penina and her arrogant words. In her prayer, she's saying, you, Penina, you talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. You mocked me, you provoked me, you shamed me, but look what God has done for me. And maybe this seems petty, 
but it's a small and a very real victory in Hannah's life. The Lord has silenced her enemy. Penina thought she was an important woman because she has succeeded where Hannah had failed in what Israelite society deemed most valuable in women, the ability to bear children. But the Lord had silenced their enemy, her enemy. And the text goes on to say that the Lord breaks all the bows of those who think they are mighty, but he gives strength to the feeble. The Lord honors humility and he shames the strong. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians 1.27 God won his victory over death through the absurd weakness of a Roman cross. And listen, we praise God that we have won an important small victory in the pro-life movement this week. But we must make sure that we do not become the arrogant who think we are mighty. Because God can use our small victories to achieve his big victories, but he is a God who is completely pro-life and completely pro-woman and completely pro-child. And we must not allow Satan to win many, many victories due to our lack of love in the wake of Dobbs versus Jackson. As Justin Gibney says, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Time to double down on protecting, supporting, and advocating for our sisters with crisis pregnancy. I praise God that so many of you here have lived that out with your lives. And I know that we will continue to do so here. Because the God of life will win his big victory for life. And he does it through humility and weakness of small people like Hannah, not through arrogance and brute force. The Lord works his big victories through our small victories. Next, we see that the Lord works his big story through our small story. Verse 5. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life he brings down to Sheol and raises up. Again, we see the weaving of Hannah's story with God's story. One of the, the great themes of Scripture is that God loves reversal. And Hannah's story is a small sliver of that great reversal that will come for all at the end of history. Let's make something clear here. Evil does not win. Wickedness is not wise. You may become a millionaire by trampling on the poor or a president through deceit and lies, but you've got another thing coming. 
Because listen, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And then verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. We don't see all of God's justice right now. Hannah got a taste. She was barren for who knows how many years while Penina cackled and laughed and paraded her children in front of her. But justice came in Hannah's lifetime and perfect justice will come. Perfect justice will come for all of us for good or ill. When the Lord returns, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Let me give you another little preview of how Hannah saw it in her lifetime. Verse 8 again. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. That phrase, seat of honor, in Hebrew, is kisei kavod. Kisei kavod. Another way we could translate it is heavy throne. With that in mind, turn with me to 1 Samuel 4.18. 1 Samuel 4.18. As soon, yeah, 1 Samuel 4.18. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat. The word there for seat is kisse, or throne. So Eli fell over backward from his kisse, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. Kavo. Eli falls off his heavy throne, his seat of honor, his kisse kavod, and he dies because his glory and honor as high priest, he had turned into fatness and greed and gluttony. You'll see why next week. Hannah's song is filled with stuff like that. Basically, the whole story of Eli and Samuel and Saul and David is alluded to in this song, but we don't have time to get into all of it. But we'll keep coming back to it throughout the story. But the point is this. Eli falls off his heavy throne. And he is replaced by that little boy, Samuel. He raises up the poor from the dust to make them sit with princes and inherit a a seat of honor, a kisse kavod. Hannah's small story is linked with God's big story. God works his big story through our small stories, and we see that most clearly in the final two verses of Hannah's song, verse 9. 
He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now there's so much to unpack here, but we only have time to focus on a couple small things. First, notice that Hannah prays about a king long before any king shows up. She recognizes somehow that her small story is interweaved with the big story of the coming of God's king. She knows that her people need a king. Remember, she's living in the period of the judges. She's seen the evil and wickedness of men like Samson and Eli and Eli's sons when people do what is right in their own eyes. But notice what she says. The Lord will give strength to his king. To his king. What's important here is that eventually God's king will show up. And we see it won't be Saul. Ultimately, it won't even be David or his son Solomon. And it won't be any of the kings after that who just become more and more depraved. Only one king will fulfill Hannah's prayer. God's true king, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hannah's small story links up with God's big story in ways she cannot even fathom. Second, notice how the end of Hannah's prayer connects with the beginning of her prayer. She says at the end of verse 10, that the Lord will exalt the horn of his anointed. And she says in verse 1, that my horn is exalted in the Lord. Same words for horn and exalt. The horn is a symbol of strength. But for most animals who have horns, if you cut off their horn, their strength is gone. An angry bull without horns is a mad cow. A majestic buck without horns is Bambi. When Hannah says, my horn is exalted in the Lord, she recognizes that we small people can be strong and can be secure, but we are only strong and secure because of our big God. My horn is exalted in the Lord. In the the Lord, Hannah says. And then verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. The Lord will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but he will cut off the horns of the wicked, for not by might shall a man prevail. Not by might shall a man prevail. Friends, we are small people. And 
we're kidding ourselves if we think we can do anything that really matters on our own. And listen, I'm preaching to myself because there aren't many more arrogant than me, okay? We, like Hannah, are small people. But we serve a big God who wants to work his big promises through small acts of faithfulness by small people like us. And our small acts of faithfulness may not be remembered like Hannah's, but there is one, I promise you. There is one who will remember us. Isaiah 49, 15. And I love how this connects back to Hannah's story. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, says the Lord, because I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Friends, we small people are secure in our big God. Our King Jesus made sure of that. He's got the scars to prove it. Hannah never expected her name to go down in history. She never expected her name to be stamped in the God-breathed scriptures, but she knew her God, and she knew that he is not a God who forgets, so she knew that he would not forget her. So she kept on praying small prayers, and she kept being faithful in small things, and God kept his promises, and he gave her what she asked for. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that you are not a God who forgets. God, I forget all the time. I forget the good things that you've done for me. I forget the joyous moments with my kids. I forget what my baby's first words were, Lord. But you do not forget. And we praise you for that. We praise you that you did not forget Hannah. And not only that, but you used this small woman in a small place to be a part of the greatest story that was ever told. The story of our one true king, our Lord Jesus Christ. And God, help us to know. I pray if there's anyone here who does not know it, I pray that everyone here would know that you have written our names on your hands. In those scars, you've made it possible, Lord Jesus, for us to come back to you forever so that we will never be forgotten because we have a God who remembers and a God who is strong. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Amen.